Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. Two Enthusiast Podcast. Still cheaper than therapy. <laughs> All right. That's good. It took a while. <clears throat> yeah. We had to real we had to kind of spitball. Uh-huh. Do a little market testing. Sure. Those taglines aren't easy to come up with. You, you you're yeah. you're lucky that you don't have that burden. No, I'm you just very have to do the you just have to do the show notes. Yeah. That's and, it. That's all I have to do. It's so easy. Well, you do a little you do a little Facebook posting too. Oh, yeah. 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 And show notes. Yeah. Prodigious show notes. Oh, really good show notes. Best show notes. Huge the show best. notes. I bigly do them forever. Oh, huge. They're, they're hugely, hugely impressive. The best I've ever seen. <laughs> all right. It's not true at all. No. no. Not true. Not even a bit. Not even a little bit. So, so Quentin, we are, we really only have one thing to talk about today. Yeah. But I think, I think it's going to spider web into a lot of different things. Yeah. Hopefully does. Yes. Yeah, I think I think we'll get into some interesting topics through this discussion. Yes, I'm excited. As you should be. It's it's big news. It happened today. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we're on it. Right. We were like we we could wait. And we're like, eh, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it now. We should talk about it. We should not, but not before we remind the the listenership that they should be. You tell me. <laughs> you, you tell me. Nope. You, you tell me. Carry that water up the hill. <laughs> Do some donkey work around here for a change. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't have it down. You had it. You used to have it down. Uh, the listeners should definitely be following us on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams. Uh, if you listen to this show through iTunes, please leave a review. And if you would be so kind, a comment as well. This week's special comment message should be kitten, kitten, smiley face, winter apocalypse. <laughs> Um, it's been fun reading the, uh, the comments people have been leaving. I'm glad everyone's enjoying the show, but most of all, when you leave a comment and you rate the show, it helps other listeners find it on iTunes is crazy algorithm thing. And that's where most people listen to their podcasts. So not only are you helping other motorcycle podcast fiends find the show, you're also helping us get the good word out there. So thank you for that in advance. And, um, that's, that, that's kind of it. Dude, am I going to have to remind you of your Asphalt and Rubber Pro? I wasn't going to like plug that every time. Okay. I'm not going to be like a corporate shell, okay. but All I right. will say we should give a shout out to the email that you got today. Oh, no, I was about to. Okay. Right? Yeah. Let's do so, that. So sign up for ANR Pro for, like that, that for sure. Do that. Do that. <laughs> Just click the ads and do that. Yeah. And, but, but this is good. I like this story. All right. So I get an email from one of my coworkers from like the all Alta email that where it just went into Alta where the a like person, a little like message group kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And, uh, the email basically was a forward of an email from a customer. Uh, uh the name is Kevin in there from uh, Nevada. I don't remember the last name or I don't even know if it was in there. It was just Kevin. So Kevin writes in, says he wants something specific on his new Alta Redshift SM or Alta, uh, Redshift MX, and he wants the SM bodywork on them. He's just asking a quick question to see if he can get the, the white bodywork on the yellow bike. He wants to pimp his ride. Right? He's doing a little ride pimping. Yeah. And then that was just one sentence, and then the next sentence was, and I want you guys to know that I listened to Enthusiast Podcast, and I bought the uh, I bought this bike because Quentin is because I heard that Quentin was part of Alta now, and I was like, what the hell? That's so bizarre. And I'm just sitting going, cha ching. <laughs> I'm like, cha ching, dude. I didn't even put anything in my contract. For I know. 
any like provisions for sales like a sucker they're just getting they're making money off me already i feel like someone owes me a hundo <laughs> next time i'm in san francisco daddy's gonna get at least taken out to dinner right you know like somewhere fancy like taco bell or yeah, something right i want a grilled stuffed burrito yeah, this time. yeah oh i'm gonna order the most expensive thing on the menu you're gonna get out of there for at least eleven dollars and cinnamon twists. If oh, you haven't yeah. had the cinnamon twists, get it goes the cinnamon without saying. And Baja Mountain. Mountain no, nah, I can't do that. I got to go. You like the Baja? No, I just like the regular OG. Mountain Dew. Yeah. You're, you're a good man. I like yeah. you. That's right. That was a test. You passed the test. Yeah. So anyway, thanks, Kevin. We really, that actually did make my day. That's just <laughs> I a I got a good thing. chuckle out of that. Right. <laughs> I mean, not the part where we're not getting paid, but at least I'm not. Like, I guess in some weird way you are. I'm really not. I, no. I'm today's big loser. Mm-hmm. No. I'm not. No, I'm not. Because that brings us full circle. Because today's big loser would be Victory Motorcycles. Because unfortunately, the news of the day is that Polaris will be shutting down Victory Motorcycles. I would say effective immediately, but it's going to take a while for them to kind of uh, wind things down. Obviously, dealers are getting inventory. I don't know if they have 2017 bikes. They must. Um, like the, the, the more, what's the word I'm looking for? The non-new models that we're just kind of getting iterative changes from 2016 to 2017. I'm sure those were already in showrooms. And then I'm not quite sure what's going to happen with the new bikes that were coming out. But uh, dealers will have some very aggressive pricing and uh, incentives to liquidate their stock. Um, for those of you who have already bought a Victory motorcycle, the of course, you're protected by law. Victory or Polaris will have to uh, offer parts and be able to give you uh, serviceable items for the next 10 years. Um, it's not quite clear yet what victory dealers will still be servicing victory motorcycles. Uh, that's something that's going to have to be set up kind of after the fact dealership set up as service centers, not necessarily victory dealerships, but they'll be victory service centers and they'll be able to, uh, work on your bike with victory certified mechanics, be able to order parts from Polaris as they see fit within the next time frame. Obviously all warranties will be honored for the full length of their term. Um, I don't know what law does this. Do you know? It's a federal thing. I would assume it's all mag. mag it's probably in Magnuson. Magnuson Moss. Yeah. Magnuson Moss. I don't even remember. I think what it's it. Magnuson. Um, so that's, I guess, the upside, but it's bad news bears for for the industry in a lot of ways. And before I think we get into the nitty gritty, Quentin, you wanted to talk about just kind of like the structure. Yeah. I want to make sure everybody knows because it can be confusing. What was Victory? It was part of Polaris. All right. So, so I'm trying to think how long Victory's been around. Victory's been around for quite some time. Uh, Victory was Polaris's... 18 years. 18 years. Okay. Yeah. Um, so everyone should understand there's Polaris Industries is based out of uh, Minnesota. Medina, Minnesota. 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 We're bad at that accent. That's Minnesota. Not Minnesota. Which is funny because it's kind of... They talk that way because they're kind of Scandinavian. I, you I mean should, Canadian? No, Scandinavian. No, Canadian. <laughs> Scandinavian. <laughs> All right, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm somewhere else. That's the worst part. I'm not even laughing at this. I'm somewhere else. Okay. Uh, it's been a long day. It's been a long day. Okay. Um, so Polaris, Polaris Industries owns a lot of things, and for the last five years or so, they've been on a tear acquiring things. So it'll probably surprise some people to hear what they own. Um, and probably a lot of the brands you don't recognize, but they own Timber Sled. They own Climb. They own, well, they bought the motorcycle business from Brahma, which we'll get into. They've started Victory Motorcycles, like you said, 18 years ago. And that was kind of their anti, well, I was going to say anti Harley Davidson, but 
I don't think that's how that brand got started. I think they got started to take on Harley Davidson in the cruise market. It's around the same time that the Japanese brands were coming out with their metric cruisers, and there was this push to take on Harley Davidson with um, on product. And I think for a variety of reasons, I don't think Victory was ever really successful in that. And the brand in the last maybe five to ten years uh, kind of morphed into the anti Harley Davidson, the sense that like they're not. They were, I would say, more modern cruisers in their styling, or, mm-hmm. or they definitely had a, a design language that was very distinct from everything else that was in the market, and it felt more modern, and um, I keep coming back to the word modern. I don't know how to describe it otherwise. You can't describe anything referenced to Harley without saying it modern, right? I mean, right. If I mean, there's kind of like that's that goes by definition, I'm not even right? being that facetious. I'm being facetious, but not that, because Harley makes bikes that aren't modern. Right, I mean, you, well, the V Rod, that's modern. Oh, well, the blankety blide glide blankety fat bob, this or that has all these modern things. It doesn't look it, doesn't yeah. look like that. And the 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 victories had a tendency to look a little swoopier, a little I mean, a little sportier, yeah. a little edgier. Uh, I always thought they had like a Long Beach feel to it, and I don't know if that's something that translates to people that live outside of SoCal or California. Like there is definitely. The LBC has its own little vibe that I feel is separate from Los Angeles or Orange County. Also, or, Vegas, even they had it, the Victory Vegas, yeah, right? Yeah. So there was a kind of a little bit more show. I don't know if there maybe a, there there was the Arlen Ness uh, uh, involvement for a while. Sunny Barger ended up. There's pictures of Sunny Barger right, on one. Right. So there was a, a definite try at some point within the past 15 years to to go full on for the Harley side of it. And, and for those that don't know, Arlen Ness is a well known motorcycle designer. Sonny Barger is a former, well, I don't know if he's still former, but um, Hell's Angel. Hell's Angel. But like heavy duty. Like one of the guys. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of how Victory came about. Um, and it kind of fits into this larger overall structure that is Polaris. And the hard thing with Victory is they never really grew. Uh, for as long as I can remember, they've always been hovering around the 9,000 to 10,000 unit mark. And for a variety of reasons, that's a really important uh, threshold in the motorcycle industry for a company like victory, at least in my research that, that has the size and the sophistication of victory, um, or of that kind of level of, of motorcycle entity nine to 10,000 units really is kind of like the break even mark. So that means there's years probably where victory is running in the red and there's probably some few years where victory is running in the black. And that's going to depend a lot on how you kind of, if you're a player, it's how you're doing the accounting, and two, how you're kind of running your business operation. And I think, you know, Quentin, you and I were talking before the show on on how s- some companies manage that that threshold differently. And it, and it definitely is a spectrum, um, you know, as companies get bigger. Obviously, like Harley-Davidson at the size it is right now would not survive on 10,000 units a year. I don't even know if they would survive on 100,000 units a year. That was a big part of yeah. Harley-Davidson's restructuring during the recession. Um was taking that company and making it, you know, moving it from a company that was built around making 300,000 units a year to making it around a company that's making 200,000 units a year. And that required, you know, closing some factories, laying off some people, changing the model, excuse me, and changing the model lineup and uh, just kind of how they, they, they go forward with their business. So take that in mind when I talk about it, but like it, it's interesting to see, you know, a brand like Victory that's based around a couple motor platforms making a lot of similar bikes, but was also trying to expand itself. So when Polaris bought Bramo's electric motorcycle business and Bramo is still 
an entity in its own right that has no affiliation with Polaris, although Victory was one of their clients for uh, electric vehicle drivetrains. Uh, Bramo still uh, does work for other brands. I think we were saying, um, I believe they're working with Toyota to make electric forklifts. forklifts uh, and they have a couple other uh, contracts like that, which are, you know, that that's that's their bread and butter now. But when Polaris bought the Bramo electric motorcycle business, they took what was then the Bramo Impulse R and rebadged it as the Victory Impulse TT. And obviously Victory was doing racing at the Isle of Man TT. They were doing racing at Pikes Peak. They've been doing racing. Um, drag racing. Drag racing, thank Heavily you. Heavily drag racing. Yeah. So, they, you know, they've had some other entities and, and there's been a lot of interest in seeing, uh, or, you know, that's been one of the speculations from 2016 was seeing whether or not Victory would come out with uh, a sport bike line or a sport bike Lineup. And that's something I think you and I talked about recently on the yeah. show. Um, I did a little consulting work with Victory and rode on an Octane for a while. And um, uh, obviously, it was because of that, they, when you gave them the review of the Octane, they're like, oh, I guess we're going to have to quit. It's all my fault. It's, you know, they clearly took that feedback and were like, oh, we should just kill this brand. <laughs> um, no, in fact, that's, 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 no, that's the thing that kind of gets me if I can sidebar it for a second. Like, you know, if I had to sit here and play CEO, I don't think this would be the move I'd make. Granted, I only have like a limited. Yeah. set of information sure you know and that's like the interesting from thing for me because i really believed in like this two-pronged attack with polaris going after harley davidson you know you had victory as this kind of a you know antithesis brand that could go where that traditional harley davidson brand could not and then you could also expand that into some really interesting street bike sure. uh, models you could and make a sport bike with victory you and could it wouldn't be outside of the yeah, I it mean, would be a little weird, but it, you could do it. Whereas you could not do that with Indian Well. I know absolutely, and that's the thing that kind of gets me. Like, I think the the Victory Impulse TT was maybe a step too far, too quick. But you could have come in there with, I think, a sweet street tracker, even just a standard naked bike. You could pretty much go any anywhere in 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 the lineup with a conventional type model. Um, you yeah, know, we it, talked about that using the say the the Octane engine, right? Even if it, there's a little bit of a lump, they could have tried to shoehorn that into something it could have been i mean it all comes down to price point right like you wedge that into like an eight thousand dollar you know version of like the fz09 which is kind of truthfully what the buell ulysses was like yeah and i think that could be a decent bike and now if you're going to try and you know wedge that into like a sport bike frame and say this is just like an fz10 or 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 no. uh, something else like that i'm guessing sure. i don't know why i'm using yamaha's as my my counterpoint but there you go uh i don't that would be a tougher a tougher thing to do sure. Um, but you could get there, you know, you could build your, your street naked cafe thing this model year and then build like, you know, uh, um, like a street fighter esque the next year. And the year after that, you could build a, a super sport or super bike or, you know, you, you build that bridge. And we've seen some great examples in the industry of people building bridges like that. Ducati comes to mind really quickly with what they've done, uh, to build, out the adventure line and how to build their brand out from being just super bikes into a whole bunch of other segments. Victory could very easily do this exact same thing using the kind of alt cruiser segment as their base. I and just, I just coined that phrase. That's trademarked alt cruiser. hashtag alt cruiser. Hmm. But to, to, to back it up a little bit that that's what I loved about the victory brands. It had a lot of versatility in it because it wasn't really married to any one ethos other than just being different whereas you know harley davidson in that traditional play 
it's a little bit harder, but that's where the Indian brand came in, where you have this brand that's actually even older and has even more heritage. And it can be the vintage throwback, whatever brand that plays counterpoint. And I love that, that duality. And I thought that was a really strong business model. What I'm sure Scott Wine, who's the CEO of Polaris and his team, you know, what they know that I don't know is probably the financials of it. And that's probably the hard part. And, and that's where I start thinking that maybe they took a good hard look at the growth of victory over the years, which has been, let's be frank, negligible. The cost, this is probably the big part of what it's going to take to build models that are going to take it into a profitable matrix. And that's, and that's where things start getting expensive, right? So you're probably going to have to start developing new motors and you might you're definitely gonna have to start developing some new chassis. Well, those are the two most expensive things for a motorcycle manufacturer to do. And then, you know, you have to amortize all the costs and the tooling and the castings and everything you need to do to build those things um, in mass. And, and I think we should expand on that a little bit because it's an interesting point. And you think of what various manufacturers do relative to model range and how, I mean, hideously complex Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, and Kawasaki. I would be interested to see a breakdown of how many separate types of engine each one of those has in their lineup. A huge amount. There's a lot, yeah. Whereas, say, Ducati isn't that many, right? And if it is, it's all based off a very similar platform. So, sure, you're going to have to have a different um, casting for a Panigale relative to an 899, 1199 is about the same, but say a Multistrada relative to a Diavel, relative to a Street Fighter 848, relative to a Hyper. All those engines, casings are really similar. There's a lot of differences in bits and pieces and whatnot, but they've been making the same basic thing yeah. for 30 years. If I think if we paint with a big enough brush and, and understand that I know that there's, there's some differences here and some nuances, I would say the Japanese brands are really good or the way they handle this issue is by using legacy power plants. So the Honda CBR double R engine of today will be the CB1000R engine of tomorrow, which will be the you know Africa twin engine of yeah, sure. you know yesteryear. Like I, well, I was saying, my F2 engine, my my 1991 CBR600 F2, I think was still in play as a 600 Hornet engine well into the 2000s, if right. not into the teens. So you're looking at an engine that made a shit ton of money for Honda back in the early 90s when 600s were the hot shit for a long time, at least a decade, 15 years probably. Right. And that beginning stages, F2 to F3, oh my gosh, they didn't have to worry. They could just make, and, and as a from an economy of scale, they can make so many of those gear sets of those engine cases, clutch baskets, cylinder heads, et cetera, et cetera. It just, I mean, you can amortize that cost over the, the course of 30 years. Holy right. crap. Right. Then it, then it just, they're just banking. I mean, we were talking, I think before the show too, like uh, I brought up the Suzuki TL platform, which is still alive and well today in the form of the V-Strom. Yep. You know, so like there's, you know, man, how many years is that? That's almost 20 years. Ninja 250 ran from mid 80s until yeah. early teens. So that's, right? yeah, so that's very much the Japanese model. And I think like Suzuki is a great example of a company that'll just keep printing out the same bike over and over. Or I'm thinking like the, the, the Honda 
XR650, you know, just sure. bikes that just don't change if over broke, don't fix decades it, right? of time. But that's how they're that's how they're making that business sense. Well, they'll you know they'll they'll get their money's worth over the long tail of that model's life. The European brands do it a little bit differently. Uh, they don't really rely on the long tail as much because usually their product lineups, uh, I would say, do a complete churn. I don't know, maybe every five, six, seven years. I haven't really sat down and looked at it, but it's it's quick. It's not like a decade or longer like we've seen with some of the Japanese brands. But what they will do is build their bikes kind of more in a modular sort of way, or at least they'll they will share platforms at their base. So you look at like the uh, RC8 motor. Yeah. For KTM, you know, it came out in the Superbike. Well, now we see versions of it powering the 1190 and 1290 Adventure Series. We see it powering the uh, KTM 1190 or sorry, 1290 Super Duke R. You look at the 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 small displacement motor, the 390, the two 200, and the 125 are all basically very similar uh, engine designs and castings. And we see that in a sport bike uh, format. We see it in a naked bike format. We will see it in an adventure bike format very, very soon. That's a bike that's been rumored for a really long time. But you're seeing it, you know, used throughout a number of models. And it, the same goes through for, you know, Ducati, where I think Ducati, if I had to think about it off the top of my head, four, maybe five engine designs. You have your air-cooled twin, your, your, your two-valve. You got the Testistrada 11 degree DS DVT, whatever it's called now. And you have your Super Quadro. And then you kind of just are wedging those in different things. Yeah, like, there's a few differences when all of them, yeah, but they're not like, that Like extreme. the XDAVL engine's a little different than the yep. DAVL, but they're sure. not that different. I mean, we're sure. talking, you know, a lot cylinder of head. A lot yeah. of share components. Sure. Internal so, and external. When you look at like the things that cost the most, the engine is by far the one of them. So when you can share costs there, you save a lot of money. When you say uh, when you share chassis design, you save a lot of money because that's another thing that doesn't cost as much to make, but obviously takes a lot of time and energy and resources and cost therein to uh, design, develop, and yes. then and then to make the the castings and and uh, what do you do when you weld it? You make a, a jig. Sorry, so you have to make all those kind of things to to, to set up your assembly line. I totally lost my train of thought. Where was I going? Down the victory failure tracks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> well, we're talking about victory relative to when it came out. It was, I think it was called the V92C, that engine platform back in the late 90s, early 2000s when it started. I remember that being on the cover of Cycle World or something back in that day and looking at it. It's like, oh, geez, another American V-twin try. And I never really paid much attention to it because I could give a shit about the American cruiser market, especially back that time. I wasn't really looking at it, but they kept on creeping on. And I really didn't give much thought to it because I didn't really understand what Polaris was relative to, I don't know, they make snow machines and side-by-sides now. I guess that would be interesting to see their market mix. It's like, what oh, do they I, make I now? It's like uh, side-by-side s- central. No, right? yeah. So, so snow is... I'm going to, this is really rough, but I was just looking at the chart today. Snow is like 70%, 60-70% of their revenue. Wow. Motorcycles is 15. It's up. It grew. Yeah. Um, But it's, uh, and I'm forgetting what the other ones are, but. Slingshot? Well, I think they, the slingshot's considered motorcycle. Is it? Yeah. A three-wheeled car to me. Well, talk to your state government about that. <laughs> 
Well, either way, it's interesting to think about Polaris relative to that and then how they kind of kept that victory brand kind of kicking along and made some bigger changes like when they made the really big cruiser thing that has that looked like a gold wing. I can't even remember what it's called. That's how sad it is. Um, we had one at Moto Corsa last year when I was working in the pre-owned side. It was tragic. It's not my gig. I can't stand crap like that. It just seemed like... Why do you say it's tragic? It was just a big Tupperware, horrible monstrosity of a motorcycle. But I don't like that type, and I'm not about to go ride that. that. That's the segment. That's not the motorcycle. I know. I'm I'm, I'm not hating on that. that That's what I'm trying to figure out, is if you're hating on the product they were creating, or if you're hating on the segments they were in. I would say... The segment it's in, no, because if I'm going to look at that segment, I'm going to buy a Goldwing, all right, by by a long shot. Um, but that's personal preference. It's just looking at the bike, thinking of a few of the things that it had as far as features or lack thereof relative to, say, the BMW six-cylinder or, or the Honda Goldwing. That's what I put that thing in. I can't, I'm sorry. I don't even remember what the, what its name is. When, in de- when indeed, it's actually more along the line of the Harley – uh, Road King style bike, I guess, but it's just super swoopy bodywork, all enclosed. There's no, it does, the, the fairing doesn't move with the handlebars. It's all, ugh, I just, it gives me the willies just to think about something that large, uh, piling down the street. Um, I, so I didn't get it. And then we've had a couple of the other victories kind of flowing around up until we rode the Octane. Octane, yeah. Which, you know, again, wasn't a, wasn't a bad bike, but it wasn't a good bike, right? And what to me that had nothing, it had nothing for me. It didn't incite me at all. And that's, I think, I think that kind of brings us back to this where, you know, if I'm, if I'm management at Polaris and I'm looking at victory and I'm saying like, Hey, this is where our brand is today. And it's, let's say it's borderline. Maybe it's making us a little money. Maybe it loses us a little, maybe we're, we're just trying to figure it all out, but to take it where I need to take it, I'm going to have to invest massive amounts of money. And even then I'm not so sure that's going to be successful. And that was one of the things that was really interesting in the press release that Polaris put out. And I don't know if it was Scott Wine being quoted or if it was just the the press release making the statement. But, you know, one of the things they cited was the changing uh, landscape for the heavyweight motorcycle market in the U.S. And, and, and to some extent abroad. But I think, truthfully, they were looking at the U.S. And this idea that, you know, you know, reading between the lines, this idea that maybe we're losing baby boomers, you know, to, to age. And that's kind of the core demographic of the motorcycle industry right now. We're having a hard time engaging millennials. Our Gen X buyers are, are probably the most promising. But, and then, you know, you have those 40 somethings that are in there kind of quasi, you know, who are becoming more secure in life and have a little bit more free capital. But, you know, we don't really see them gravitating towards motorcycles either. So, you know, maybe this this roller coaster is kind of coming to an end, and maybe that's not where we should be doubling down if we're just going to build another street bike brand. Because they were very specific in saying that we're going to focus our attention on the Indian brand and on the Slingshot brand. Because you know, you can sit here and hate on the Slingshot all you want, Quentin, but those fuckers are selling. You know, they're seeing good growth out of that, and they're getting good margin on it. And in a lot of markets, those bikes are hard to, to keep on the showroom floor. And then, you know, with Indian, it's it's really easy because you just look at what Harley Davidson does each year and say, hey, that's the total available market. I'd like a piece of pie. I'd like a piece of that pie and let's go. And, you know, they've been pretty effective at it. I don't know if I quite get flat track racing for the Indian brand, but 
when you're going against Harley Davidson and it's kind of set up like a showdown, okay, that starts to make more sense. Sure. Um, there's possibilities, I think, that you can take the Indian brand into spaces like that. And maybe and maybe that's where you start building that bridge. Like I said before, you know, with, with Victory, maybe you can do that with Indian. And that's maybe something that Harley Davidson can't. But, you know, you come out with a flat track based street bike, a street tracker. And then maybe that from there gets you to an upright naked bike, standard bike. And maybe that gets you to a sporty sportier bike or maybe that gets you into more of an adventure bike or more of a touring bike you know maybe there's there's fingers that can branch out from there i don't know but we'll see and we'll see what the reaction is with with indian going racing with indians whammy bammy 750 cc race engine which looks pretty freaking tits mcgee yeah and that's what surprised me because i thought that was going to be an indian victory showdown machine where they were going to use that crossed over you know what I mean? I, I, I'm not, but the more I think about it, the more I figure the, uh, um, yeah, that can only, they, they were burning the candle both ends brightly with, with all that. Well, and that's, you know, that's the interesting, like I just thought about now, like, you know, you look at the, the crossover and the sharing between victory and Polaris. And I think that is maybe part of the issue where they're saying like, okay, so we're having a hard time distinguishing these two brands from each other. You know, the victory octane is really just, an Indian scout with, you know, different shoes on, you know, it's, they're yeah. really, they're really similar motorcycles. Sure. And so if you start sharing, you know, that, let's say that a uh, liquid cooled engine goes into production somehow, and you start sharing that between the two brands. Well, now you're kind of like, what's the difference between these two brands? And you kind of look at, uh, Husqvarna and KTM and the bikes that they're coming out with. Well, you know, now Husky is coming out with street bikes that are very different from things that KTM would make, although they're still based on the same platforms. If you look at the dirt bike models and it's even harder to understand what the differences are. Like you really have to start like looking at the spec sheet and looking at the build list to understand, you know, what's different about this bike. Oh, this one's got a, a composite subframe and this one's got a metal subframe. Oh yeah. No, really. And basically it's, this one's white and yellow. Right. And this one's orange. And so many people seriously, strangely just don't want to ride an orange bike because of whatever stigma there is against KTM. I, this is a lot of people, a lot of people that I know, and that's strange to think of and think about that relative to victory. There's nothing like that that exists with victory and Indian. There's just probably a lot of people that have the potential to own a cruiser that isn't a freaking Harley Davidson. And then maybe they don't want to have that um, commingled any longer. They want to just have one brand, strong Indian done. And then, you know, don't have to worry about creating other fancy weird stuff like they have been trying for years to try and get some traction with the victory brand. So this Pikes Peak uh, thing and the drag racing thing, maybe they're looking at it like, Hey, we are not seeing any ROI at all with this. Perhaps we need to be concentrating a little bit more on the, on the Indian side and let go of this completely. I mean, I would love to know how much they have to spend every year to just to keep that, the victory brand going at 10,000 units a year. I guess that's what you're talking about. The way you'd want to see it from, from a long gain standpoint is like, okay, I got, we've got a 10 year plan and a 20 year plan. And if we have a 20 year plan, we're going to be um, making say three new engine, completely whole new engine families over that course of that time, just to stay competitive. And it's going to cost us this many millions to do that. And we're going to make, this many hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit 
Oh, that sounds like a great way to take a lot of money to make a little, you know? And and, and then understand, too, that if you start sharing the development between Victory and Indian with those engine de- designs, that on some level, you're going to be diluting both brands. Yeah. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing in business. Sure. You know, we talk about like, oh, you're going to be cannibalizing sales. Like, well, you're cannibalizing sales from yourself, so it really doesn't matter. Maybe. Uh, Unless you're spending a fuck ton of money on marketing and whatnot to, to, well, to, I'm just looking at it from the perspective of like, if you're going to keep, like, let's say Indian is your growth, uh, your growth brand, which, which it is, you know, that, that's the one that has the most potential that's growing with the, the highest rate of growth. Um, you know, in keeping, and, and it's always going to, it's the potential for it to do business more than victory is, is tenfold. Yeah. You know, maybe even literally tenfold. Yeah, probably. Maybe 20 fold exponent. It's an it, exponent. It's, it's a huge number. It's a huge number. So by keeping around this other brand, you might actually be hurting your growth. So, you know, let's say, like, you know, victory and Indian together, Indian sells, you know, a hundred thousand units, victory sells 10,000 units. And that's your, you know, 110,000 units is your, is your nut. But maybe without victory, Indian sells 150,000 units. Yeah, sure. So you just made a 40,000 unit gain, even though you're getting rid of one brand. It's, it sounds counterintuitive, but it comes down to market perception. And it comes down to this idea of of um, leading in segment. Well, and that, that'll bring me to, to say Ducati with the Monsters and Scramblers. And what happened when they brought in the Scramblers and took away the small monster? And they quickly realized how stupid that was to do because not everybody that wants a small, air-cooled, simple, you know, sub $9,000 Ducati wants a scrambler. They want the monster. So they're bringing back after a couple years of non-existent 796 monster, 696 monster, which was the smaller, they're bringing it back, right? It's a great example of it because what we'd see at the at the dealer level was the scramblers were, as usual with most Ducati models like that, flashing the pan exciting. Wow, that's great. We were selling a shit ton of them. And then the next year, precipitous fall off uh, in, in excitement. So the scramblers, what, weren't you reading recently of the, like, the first three yeah. quarters of this year? I've been, I've been going through the, the Ducati numbers a lot because I'm working on a story. And, it, and you're right. It is, it is amazing to see the drop off in sales for the monster uh, line compared to the scrambler line and the way Ducati breaks out those numbers, it is, it makes it very clear what's going on. Um, I mean, we're talking, you know, almost 20,000 units dropping down to like 13,000 units. And then as the scrambler comes in, I think it was like 16 or 17,000 units, 22,000 units, something You're crazy. Over the, this is in the world. Yes. In the world. Yes. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, you can absolutely, you can absolutely see it. And then what's interesting is you see like the next year, year two for the scrambler coming out, the production levels are in line with how many were sold the year before, but the actual number of bikes that are being sold is precipitously lower. It, you know, it's like it's like a margin of like five thousand units or something like that. And they so, keep uh, their forecast, I guess, is like, oh, we'll just see growth. We're going to see nothing but growth. When in reality, they're selling these bikes to the same freaking people, and it's not that it's not growing that much. Well, that's right? the thing. Like, I think you know, the Scrambler. I don't know if it was a sellout, but it was, it sold well in its first year. Excellent. Um, and maybe there is probably an element of people who couldn't get the bike when they wanted it in year one. And I think Ducati was hoping that those people were going to show up again in year two. And that's where some of that forecasting was coming from. They, you know, because supply 
or sorry, demand outstrips supply. And it just, it just wasn't the case. And so now we're kind of seeing, you know, I haven't seen um, Q4 numbers yet, but I'd be very surprised if Ducati posts uh, growth for the 2016 uh, model year. Uh, and if they do, it'll be very small. It won't be like it's been in the past. Um, and that brings us to, frankly, the big overriding thing for me is, is it the health of the industry that's is with this victory thing? Is that part of it? Well, that's a huge thing, right? So that's, that's man, that's a conversation in itself. This this has been an interesting few years um, with the economy and with the way the motorcycles have sold. And you kind of have to understand how we how we do things in the U.S. and understand that Harley-Davidson is basically half the market. So if Harley-Davidson has a bad year, the industry as a whole is seen to have had a bad year, but that isn't necessarily representative of what's going on. BMW just posted another record year. I just saw their numbers today. It's about 5 to 6% growth. Holy crap. That's on top of years of 5 to 6% they've just growth, been, They've right? just been doing it. And part of that is them hitting new markets, and but it's also, I think, mainly them getting into new segments. And they've been pretty good at keeping their models fresh and relevant. Yep. Um, and, and marketing them well. And marketing well and taking care of their customers. And this is something I think BMW does better than any other brand. They don't build the most reliable bikes, but they retain customers like no other. And the brand loyalty is right there because when, what was it, the R1200 RT had its suspension issue. This is a major issue for a flagship bike in BMW's lineup, and people were getting taken care of. BMW was going out of its way to make sure its dealers were enabled to make it right, which is a huge thing. And I think a lot of brands can look at that and say, how can we learn um, to do some better customer relationship management? Um it's funny. I don't hear, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's abbreviated to CRM. You don't hear, when I talk to motorcycle executives, you don't hear them talk about CRM very much. They talk about a little bit about supply chain. They talk a lot about marketing. They talk about segments. Sometimes they talk about financing, but never uh, consumer relationship management. Well, that's a, that's a very common thing at the dealer level as far as to have a CRM that you can log info in for, well, I guess I shouldn't say it's common. It's just something I've been around because it's something that Motocorsa was doing fairly heavily. They weren't doing it well because they just got the CRM software for this past year and had yet to get it like on song because it's not intuitive. It's not easy. No, it's tough. It was really difficult to collate that information. And that's the thing. And that's where a lot of brands get separated, you know, outside of the industry is just because it's, it's, it's easy. It's something that's very easy to say, but it's very hard to do well. And you can see there's businesses built around um, companies that do this well. They, they bring in their team. They say their core competency is well-built CRM. An industry that does this extremely well is the cruise line industry. If you ever go on a cruise, uh, you'll notice the level of detail and attention that the staffs give you because they are data mining machines. I mean, right down to, you know, like your, your maid doesn't just come into your room and make your bed and clean the sheets and bring, give you fresh towels and all that. They take note of you use two towels, you use two hand towels, but three regular towels in a room for two people. You need extra towels or, Hey, you know, you're sleeping on this bed, but not that bed. You know, we're going to change things up. I noticed in the mini fridge that you ate the Doritos, but you didn't eat the Frito-Lays. I'm going to put three bags of Doritos in and only one bag of Frito-Lays in when I restock the mini fridge because I can tell which ones you like more. They're very, very, you know, that's just 
a very small example of what they do. Um, but I find it fascinating. I think it's a fascinating industry from that perspective. And, you know, motorcycling can learn a lot from that because well, a lot of this is relationship management. A lot of these bike sales are repeat people. We are not a very good industry at bringing in fresh blood. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Maybe we should get into them a little bit later. Yep. But, you know, one thing we can do better is manage the people that are already inside the industry. And, you know, the, the old adage is it's, it's way cheaper to keep a current customer than it is to create a new one. So, you know, it's, if, you know, if you're a brand and someone like bought your bike, you should be doing everything you can to make sure they are a repeat customer to your brand because it is going to be so hard to get them back once they leave. And, and, you know, and that's just a fraction of keeping people in motorcycling overall because it is so hard not only to get them back, but then to just replace them with someone new. And that's the hurdle that, that the motorcycle industry is having the biggest time overcoming because we really just market to ourselves. We really are just churning people around that are already in the industry. And we're just kind of swapping Honda riders for Suzuki riders, for Ducati riders, for KTM riders. And this kind of just like melting pot of motorcycling. Yeah, I agree. And that's one thing, uh, <clears throat> starting up with Alta, uh, just even this past week, looking at some of the data that we're collecting and the data that we're going to be collecting for dealers. Because imagine I'm at an entity that is starting this from scratch. So I'm getting to see how to start a motorcycle company, essentially. Uh, the, I mean, within the first weeks of public launch, right? So that's a cool thing to see. And we were talking about um, what data would a dealership want to see with its bikes that it's sold? And somebody was like, why would they want to see what they've sold? Well, let me tell you, right? If I'm sure the dealership would have some sort of a, um, it's not a CRM, but they're, um, they're databasing, like that's called Lightspeed for most of the dealers. Sure. So they have Lightspeed, which then uh, is their way to keep track of their parts and their accessories and their bikes and sales and et cetera, et cetera. It goes all the way through the dealership generally. And this one company has kind of an, uh, a hold on the motorcycle industry. It's called Lightspeed. So yes, you can, you can mine data out of Lightspeed to get, who did I sell a XYZ bike to this past year? And who do I need to talk to? Who can I follow up with? Who can I sell another bike to? Who can I ask to see if they need service, et cetera? So I brought up to them, I was like, well, if we can have a, a thing in our dealer portal, in the Alta dealer portal, that shows the vehicles that were sold to that specific dealer, that, deal, when they, that way when the dealer logs in and they say, hey, I wonder who we've sold Redshift MX bikes to, how many have we sold to Supermoto bikes to, you know, what's this list? And then have reminders that say, after a week, a callback for sales to make number one to make sure that the bike's rad. Right. It gives you an opportunity to talk to the customer and make sure it's good. And if there is a problem to make good on it. Number two, to say, hey, are you ready for your first service? Get service work in six months later. Hey, there's a reminder. Hey, you should contact this customer. Is there um, uh, do, maybe there's some new exciting parts for that bike, et cetera. And then a year later, either uh, yearly service stuff. Again, this is all for the dealer. There's a yearly service stuff or, hey, would you be interested in the newest, latest, greatest model, that type of thing. And that's part of the relations management. And that's something that hopefully, you know, at, at, a, at a startup style thing, we have the wherewithal to do that because we're, you know, we're going to have all this stuff at our fingertips built almost in-house, which is a really neat thing. But it's also daunting as shit because, holy crap, there's so much stuff that you need to get information for, so much data to get. And I think it stymies a lot of dealers, especially dealers that are still used to dealing with 
freaking i'm not even kidding you with rolodexes yeah i was gonna say a paper rolodex right i'm not even kidding you like i know a dealer multiple dealers that still have that type of stuff because they had no i mean they have customers for 30 years and they're not going to put they need to hire somebody almost full-time to just to enter in their old customers and frankly a lot of those customers are gone right all those models are gone all the parts information is gone and whatever you know they have a microfish machine Wow. Most, most people on, <laughs> that are listening to this have no fucking idea what I mean by microfish. And it's stuffed up in the, in the catacombs and there's no microfish. There's no, nobody that can read one. Right. And that's all I looked up parts on for a long time. So it, it's a mind boggler because most of it's online now, but that should make it easier. It's just, it's too complex in some ways. The fact that that exists, though, I think is, is a great signal of or at least one data point on the issue with this industry, though. The fact that we still have dealers in 2017 that probably are working with a Rolodex for their contacts or a microfiche for their parts or, or things like that. Like, that should be astounding. That was one of the things that always struck me when, uh, this is not a perfect uh, analogy, but it was, you know, it was one of those things that was really interesting for me as a law student. For me, I was sitting there going, like, the this industry is 10 years behind the time in terms of what technology can do. I look at the motorcycle industry and like on certain elements of it, we are like 30 years behind. So you, know, you come back to this idea of the fact that there are dealerships that are relying on a physical paper Rolodex to keep track of their and that's customers. Hyperbole. That's hyperbole. There's only one that I know of that I know has their whole parts on a Rolodex for contacts and stuff that there might be a couple out there. I'm sure there is. There's a couple of these older owners that have that and they're using it. But what I think there might be a little bit less hyperbole would be, hey, where can I fax this form to? Oh, my God. It, I'm not I, kidding you. I, that I have is that all the, the time. I have that on um, at least once a month. I have someone like, oh, yeah, I just fax that over. I go, excuse me? Yep. I'm like, I don't even have a phone line in my house. All the time. Like, you, yeah. you gotta, you, there's this thing called email. You got to get on it. It's crazy train. Yeah. No, and, and a lot of dealerships have this issue where I need to fill in this form for this well, for me, it was when I was working for Ducati, I needed a form filled out from a dealership to do something and they would fax it to me. So I would get to the point where I would have to send a form to a dealer via email. They'd print it out. They'd fill it out. They'd send it back to me either in this electronic fax form or some other awful way when I really needed to have it so that I could just submit it as an electronic form. Like a PDF to a... Yeah. Another thing sure. that you're submitting, yeah. And then it's all PDFs, right? It should have been a PDF, but no, no, the dealers couldn't figure. And, and I understand it to some extent because there are certain places where certain computers wouldn't open this and wouldn't open that, and you have to have all the updated this and all the updated. And, and most of these dealers are on the back foot as it is anyway, just trying to keep up with their personnel, trying to keep up with the bikes they have in stock, the service department, et cetera. They don't even have time to deal with the electronic side of it. And you almost need somebody in IT at a dealership level to, to be able to handle all that stuff, almost, right? So you and I are, are a little bit more used to it, but the dealers are not, right? Well, and that's I think that comes back to, you know, a point I was, I was hoping we could get to because I think some of that is generational because you look at you look at the age of the dealership owners, you look at the age of the people in this industry, and in general, it, it skews older. I was making the joke before the show started because the MIC just elected all of its new board of directors. And, you know, it's it's going to be the basis for for a story. And it's called Motorcycling's Old White Guy Problem because 
every single person that was elected to the MIC board or is you know continuing to serve on the MIC board is an old white guy. But you know, we sit here as an industry and we complain about how do we get younger riders involved? How do we get minorities involved? How do we get women involved? And you sit there and you look at our leadership structure and it's like, oh, it's a bunch of old white guys. Gee, I wonder why we're having problems uh, or why we're having trouble engaging people that aren't also old white guys. You know, that, that right there is the crux of it. Like when I have a, a, a manufacturer come up and ask me, Jensen, how do we get, you know, millennials involved? You Hire know? some freaking millennials. Well, that and understand too that if you are asking me that question, you already don't understand the situation because I am a motorcyclist that came into this industry through the, you know, looking glass that was already there, i.e. the old white guy looking glass. I accepted motorcycling the way it, it was and chose to be a part of it. You're asking, how do you engage people that reject that already? And so the answer is like, well, you need to find probably people that aren't, you know, engaged with motorcycling and ask them why, or, or at least understand like the people that are coming in that are fresh blood that are doing motorcycling different. And I'm, I'm talking about hipsters here and, and say, okay, so what, why are you coming into this industry and what do you like about it? And what don't you like about it? You know, because they are, they're part of this industry, but they're also a counterculture part of this industry. So they are in a way the expression of, of, of what needs to be changed or, or where it needs to evolve. I think that's really interesting. Well, uh, that I've said this before on the program, I'm sure of it. Um, the motorcycle companies don't need to be vying for market share against each other as much as they need to be vying for market share against other interesting things that people are doing that aren't motorcycles. So, we should look at very much like what are millennials gravitating towards for fun? Is it video games only? No. But is it going skiing? Is it going skydiving? Is it hiking? Is it, well, you know, what right now, what is hot where people are saying, eh, I don't want to get on a motorcycle. I got other things I can do for that type of jolly. I think, I think there's a great example to look at like the marketing that Red Bull does in particular. I think Monster does it pretty well, but you know, Red Bull is a company that's based, ba- its business model, or at least its marketing business model is based around lurid activities. Jumping from 80,000 feet, you know, skydiving from 80,000 feet, doing a flute tog where you take this like man-made like glider thing and throw it off a ramp and watch everyone fall 30 feet to, you know, the cold icy river. Um, Formula yeah. One. Formula One. And, like, and, and they're in MotoGP because MotoGP is one of the most exciting things. Sure. In, in the sport and they're in, are they in Supercross? I'm not, I'm not a follower of Supercross, but Monster certainly is. Sure. You know, they're finding the things that, that are eye catching and lured that appeal to a straight rhythm. Right? Uh, if you want super, Supercross, but that's yeah, an example. That would be an of example. Thing You're right. Do. And, and they're really good at making their own events, which, which is, uh, straight rhythm is a great, uh, example of, but their, their whole thing is like they've tapped into generation, into a generation that, um, there is already a high competition for their attention and they're doing it effectively. And the motorcycle industry can learn a lot from that. It was an interesting opportunity. We had more snow in Portland this, this week, um, which is always fun. And I won't even bore you with the crazy driving details, but I I got the chance to go ski. And one of the conversations we were having as we were going up the ski lift was how skiing has changed uh, in, in the 30 something odd years that I've been doing it. And, you know, when I was younger, skiing was the only thing you could do. That was that ski resorts. And you got up there and you got in your skis and you did your skiing thing and skis and skiing didn't really change for like 
the first 10 years or so that I was a skier. And then all of a sudden snowboarding came along and snowboarding really changed things because now all of a sudden, like, and I was a teenager at this point in time, um, that was what the cool kids did. And you, you got on your board and you shredded the half pipe and you were grinding rails and you're getting big air. And it was, it was a lot more exciting. It was a lot more lurid. It was based off skateboarding, which already had an in with a younger demographic. And this was just an extension of, of, of all board sports. Basically, this is where we got wakeboarding. This is where we got kite surfing, all these kind of things kind of centered around being on a board, doing aerials, doing tricks and things like that. Meanwhile, the people who were on skis were considered stodgy and old and old school. Absolutely. And, and there was this rift between skiers and boarders. And the there were mountains that wouldn't allow snowboarders. Absolutely. It was just ridiculous. It was, a whole, it was a whole thing. And I think if that had continued, skiing as a sport would eventually have died out as skiers aged out of the sport. If that doesn't remind you of something that we've been talking about for the last hour, it should. Yeah. But what happened is, and what we've seen in the past maybe five, ten years, is skiing react to to the boarding influence. And now we see the design of skis have changed radically. Like with the parabola skis. Parabola skis, but we're also seeing like there's all sorts of different kinds of skis that are some are, some are based around for freestyle and tricks. Some are built for better cornering and, and going through moguls and things like that. Deep powder skiing, uh, skiing for you know backcountry. Because um, ostensibly skis, especially to do tricks on skis, it could be considered more difficult. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm I sure there's going to be some snowboarders that are going to hate on us for saying that. Because no, no, no. I don't know. I'm a I, much better skier than I am a snowboarder. I am much better doing tricks on a snowboard than I am with skis. Just right there. I can't do either. I just go down the hill, right? I, I just go fast. I just want to go fast. No, seriously. I, I love blue groomed runs and I'll haul ass and I don't crash that much, but I don't push myself because I don't want to because I've had family members almost get um, uh, paralyzed from, seriously, literally paralyzed from it. I've known enough bad things that happen. Like skiing's dangerous. It's like legit dangerous. I love it though. And when I got on skis for the first time after like, just like you went into the board thing, cause it was easy. You just had to have one board. You didn't have to have poles. You just had your boots. You could walk around in the boots easy. There were so many reasons for me to get a board back in the early two thousands that well, I did. And, right? and too, if you came from a skateboarding background or a wakeboarding background or any of these other board sports, it was the skill sets all interchangeable. And I didn't, I just thought, I know it wasn't from any of that. Yeah, I rode a skateboard when I was a kid, but it was like a Nash and I would just just cruise around. I didn't do anything because I didn't know any better and I was never any good at it. So for me, it was just a it was a matter of practicality to get the board. It was easier to deal with. But then once I got on skis recently, probably within the past three or four years in Colorado, I got on I just happened to be in Colorado and I happened to want to go and get on them and, and it opened my world. I knew about these par- parabolic skis. I understood that that was the thing, so I wanted to give them a try. I tried it, and I felt so much better on those skis going down that mountain than I ever did on a snowboard, and I was just like, oh, this is why I would do it if I got back into it, but I spend all my money on motorcycles, and that's how I want to spend my money, so I don't, like, how much money did you have to spend to go to Mount Hood Meadows this past weekend? Uh, 150 bucks, to, including the rental. So the rental of the stuff. The, the rental and the lift ticket. And the lift ticket, 150 So for me, that's, well... It's not quite a set of tires, but that's probably like a track day's well, worth of stuff. I think the point isn't that uh, skiing is an expensive sport versus motorcycling. The point, the point is that you know, here's a sport that easily could have died out 
with as the generation aged out. Yeah, sure. But instead, it's coming back hard. Realized what the 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 currents were, especially with the younger generations, and adapted to it. And so now skiing isn't just this old white guy sport, huh? But is instead a sport that you know transcends, I think, all age groups. And different age groups are getting different things out of it. I still see young kids on ski team going down the hill haul assing fast but i also see kids on you know skis that have um i'm gonna i'm bad with my ski terminology but they have little lips on either side of the ski because so that way you can go down the hill backwards and do tricks backwards and you know flips and all that other stuff and you see you know shorter skis and longer skis and you see fatter skis and narrower skis and it's this idea of like okay well we can do different things than just the way our parents used to do it and i think that was a fundamental thing for uh, the ski industry to learn. And, and then you see it in the S games. We've seen it in the Olympics. The sport has evolved where you include yeah. moguls and, and there's a jump element to that. And it's not just super G and, and slalom and things like that. But uh, super G and slalom are still really radical, amazing things to watch. They haven't, it hasn't taken away from them. No, right? it hasn't. It hasn't. But, but there's just like, like this willingness to change this open mindedness to say like, Hey, you know, just because one generation did it, one way doesn't mean we have to force that on to another generation because if they had done that i think that would have been the end of the skiing well, industry what's the analog for motorcycling because motorcycling to me there's so many different things to do with motorcycles so many hundreds of thousands of different things you can do on a yeah, motorcycle but the way you and i appreciate motorcycling is probably different than the way people of our parents age appreciate motorcycling and i guarantee you if you and i go down to cc and talk to the hipster contingency the way they enjoy motorcycling is different than the way you and i do it and I think that's some of the friction that comes in the motorcycle industry when we talk about like BMW riders and Ducati riders and they go to the Starbucks and then those Harley riders, their bikes just break down and they're not even motorcycles and those hipsters, well, they're just playing make-believe all day long. Like that comes back to the, like you're doing motorcycling different than the way of I do motorcycling and I don't like it. Yeah. And, and since motorcycling is a very individualistic pursuit, when you do it differently from someone else, it creates an in-group versus out-group kind of situation. And that's and that's where we're at. Like, you know, like legitimately, like look on Facebook today. I, like we had a great example of of like the old white guy in the industry reaction to Victory Motorcycles closing down. You could see it in people that have been around in the industry for a long time and have, you know, touched Victory for a long time. And their reaction to the brand was almost just like, I just read it as the get off my lawn argument where it's everyone else's fault but theirs. And it's like, well... Understand that the market situation is going to be the, the same regardless. And you can either choose to adapt and be part of it, or you can choose to say my way or the highway and put your head in the sand and watch it die all around you. It, those, it's, it's just as simple as that. Well, how do you put that to the victory? Do you think that victory basically gave up or do you think they could have done better? Or do you think Polaris is doing the right thing and is going to make it right? I think, I think, I think, I think the two things have nothing to do with each other, if I'm truthfully honest. If I think about it and chew on it a little bit more, I think that's where I'm going to come down on it. Because I look at Victory's decision here with Polaris as a business decision. And I think if I guess at what I think information Scott Wine and his people have at their fingertips, that's going to be the correct business decision any day of the week and twice on Sunday. And it just kind of sucks because I'd rather have more brands in this industry than yeah, fewer. Sure. I'd rather have uh, more people involved and things like that. Uh, but I think they're right, even though I would, you know, from the, uh, from my office chair, I would like to have 
been right about my story about uh, victory and Indian being a two-pronged approach to the Harley-Davidson question. But I get it. I get it. But we we do need to have a conversation about where this industry is headed and okay. how we're going well, that, to treat it. That was it. what I was asking: is whether you thought that this was a harbinger of bad times, even more so. And I kind of I'm kind of with you. I don't think it is. I think it was just inter- I think it was Polaris specific. Uh, see, them seeing, okay, we're diluting. We don't want to dilute any longer, and we're going to go with this brand, and that's that. I, right? I think I think I've talked about it before. I think Polaris failed slow with Victory. I think yeah. Victory was a failure as a brand. Because it wasn't Harley, and I think they fell victim to the same trap that the Japanese brands fell victim to with their metric cruisers, where it wasn't about the product, it was about the marketing. Because truth be told, Victory never did good marketing, period, for the first 15 years of the brand. And I'm going to give or take two, three years on that. But for the first 15 years of the brand, I I mean, I never saw it. You know, they never marketed towards me, and they should have. Yeah, because I was I was probably in that sweet spot of younger demographic, get them into the brand, the edgier cruiser, modern cruiser brand. That could have been that could have been me. If you got me on the right day when I wasn't, you know, getting hooked on sport bikes, I could have been in your brand. And I look at the modern marketing and I'm just like, truth be told, you guys felt like the biggest sellouts in the entire industry. You're literally writing stories on Cycle World. I have a great graphic and I should share it at some point. And I, I overlaid a green box over everything on Cycle World's homepage that had to do with Victory or was Victory's marketing content or something written by Victory or content where Victory and Cycle World had partnered with each other. And the entire fucking page is green. It is unbelievable how much, you know, it was during Pike's Peak. So you had Don Kinney riding the, the Victory Project 156. And then you had the big banner promoting the 156 racing thing at Pikes Peak. And then you had a story written by the Victory PR guy about, you know, the build of building this for Pikes Peak. And then you had the Victory uh, just advertisement that, you know, for some reason, oh, they bought advertising during when this was all going on. And then here's like the three stories of Victory press materials that were just put out today of different things that were going on in the brand. And you sit there and you're just like, I'm sorry, like you just, you just came at this with like the most, I was going to say old school way, but it's not old school. It's, you know, that goes in the face of all of, all of, you know, staunch old school journalism, but it was like this, the most unsophisticated strategy you can imagine. Super overt, like, Hey, we're going to boom, just bought and paid for it, bought and paid for it. Shotgun it. And I'm not saying that the content was bought and paid for. And this was my, um, my reply to, to, to Don Kane when, when we were having a little bit of a tiff about it. And all I have to say is like, when people talk about print being bought and paid for, this is what they're talking about. There doesn't have to be an exchange of money. There doesn't have to be uh, a nefarious agenda. There doesn't have to be any sort of collusion. It's just the appearance of it. Yeah. You know, I'm not sitting here saying like, you know, dirty things are going on. I'm just saying it look like it. And that's the bigger issue because looking like it and doing it for all intents and purposes for the consumer and for the perception yeah. is the same. And sure. that's something that I think that people forget sometimes. And, you know, and you weren't the only one that noticed it, I'm sure. Right. I mean, you got to, of course, you're hyper aware of it because you're watching it like, wow, this is this, this is overt. It's really bad. But I think enough people would see that and kind of get down and they might get down on the brand or they'd get down on cycle world, which is frankly, you know, something know. that you have to worry about. I don't go, I don't go that far with it, but it, it just, for me, it shows the mindset of where they're coming from. Like this was a very like, <sighs> this was like a very like guerrilla marketing plan. And I don't mean that like guerrilla fighters. I mean like guerrilla, like an ape, like this is what I would expect a giant 
hairy ape to put together. You know, monkeys. <laughs> this is this is this is how monkeys do marketing. These are the same people that say sex sells, and they put a hot chick wearing next to nothing next to a product and say, "Well, look how many clicks I got on that." And I go, "Do you think they were clicking on it for your product, or were they clicking on it for the tits?" And at the end of the day, what did they go buy? Your product or tits? It's it's the stupidest thing. Like, what are you? What you measure and how you measure it is more important. You know, it's this idea like, oh, well, I put out a YouTube video of me being in my uh, bikini and I got a thousand or a hundred thousand watches, whereas like the video I put out where I'm wearing all my clothes, I only got a thousand. So me being in my bikini is better. It's like, well, it is if all you care about is how many views you get. But if what you care about is how much influence you gave or how clear the message was or what kind of perception you gave to your overall brand, you need to be measuring something other than the place. You know, it's that same idea. Sure. And so this idea of like, you know, I'm sure the, the cycle world example is a great one. I'm sure victory got a ton of eyeballs and a ton of clicks and, and, you know, all the metrics that, uh, advertising companies really value, but I, bet they lost a lot on like the hard to measure things. How many people did you really influence? How many people ended up getting down to the dealership and buying a, a, one of those bikes? You know, how many octanes got sold because of that ad campaign versus when that ad campaign wasn't going on? And I view that frankly as like kind of a halo thing where you're, you're doing it just to build up the brand in general so that for future, you know what I mean? I, and I get that. So I'd understand that, but that's long game stuff. And then they were doing that in a long game way thinking, Hey, we're, we're planting the seeds of performance of racing, of sexiness from being in racing for bikes that are be sold in a couple of years from now. And we can harken back to this thing. Um, you know, that I get that. I can understand that. In that case, that would, that would make sense. But it reminds me of the, of the, I just posted this quote to your, your wall today. Cause it was oh, yeah. almost out of irony. It was a George Orwell quote. Well, it's not actually by George Orwell, but it, 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 it gets attributed to him a lot. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it's classic meme bullshit, but still holds true. The message is true. Yeah. The message is true. And that is journalism is telling tales that somebody doesn't want you to tell. All the rest is just public relations. Right. And that that sums it up. You as a journalist or those people as journalists, if they're going to truly be journalists, they're going to be telling the story and it most likely is going to be feather ruffling at some point if it's going to be a good journalistic story. Sometimes you need the fluff pieces. Sometimes you need the, hey, look how awesome this bike is pieces. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But if it's that overt and that abject where it's like the whole page and they didn't even have the the wherewithal to spread it out over the course of a magazine and that victory was like, I don't know, maybe it's dumb enough to look at that page and say, hey, oh yeah, we want to see that victory name 30 times on two on two pages instead of spacing it out a little bit, right? Here, here's an easy metric or an, or an interesting metric, I should say. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying before on what you what you measure and what's important. The brands that I see, the, the, the journalistic brands that I see struggling are the same brands I have a hard time remembering the last time they published something that someone didn't want published or, or more, or in a, putting that in a better way and that's less edgy broke some news, told a story that was investigated and reported and, and, and developed instead of something that came from a press release or came from some media event or came from some gallery or, or something was plagiarized from another, uh, entity, not even, not even like you don't have to go that, that route of it, but just lo- like, you know, how many, you know, I think about the print publications. When was the last time, Cycle World really broke broke a story. When was the last time Motorcyclist really broke a story? When was the last time Sport Rider really broke a story? And 
you know, I, I look at like um, some some of the brands that are doing really well. And, you know, Motorcycle News out of the UK is a really interesting publication. I think you can say a lot of negative things about them, but you have to give them credit. They probably break more stories in this industry than anyone else. And that's probably why they have one of the biggest readerships in this industry and are doing fairly well. I, th- I think the same about uh, in Europe, like Motorcyclismo does a really good job of this. Um, you look at some like the racing sites that do this really well. Like my colleague David Emmett, he he gets he gets a good number of stories each year. And that's why Moto Matters that- does well, and that's why you see like people like at um, uh, Crash dot yeah. does quite well because they have a team of journalists, and I say that journalists that are out there finding stories, getting exclusives, breaking news, and it's not always things that people want published. You know, and that was the thing today, you know, on Asphalt and Rubber, I was publishing something that uh, was about Envy Augusta that probably people didn't want published. But that's one of the things where I sit there and like, I want to be the journalist that is breaking stories. Because like you said, everything else is public relations. We already have enough people doing public relations in this industry. We don't need more of that going on. And that's where I kind of get kind of a little snarky about the, the you know, that example of Cycle World and Victory. And it's like, well... You know, they're they're both to blame in that regard. Like Cycle World should have more journalistic integrity than than to kind of sell out like that. But on another point, like I think it speaks volumes about what Victory's kind of internal business plan, marketing plan perspective was. The fact that that would be something that they would want to do and say, like, hey, yeah, let's just like take over Cycle World for a week, and we're gonna get we're gonna get a ton of eyeballs on that. We're gonna get a ton of clicks, and that's. That's what's important. So let's do that. Instead of saying like, hey, what can we do that would be meaningful, that would be really good in a marketing way? You know, how can we look at like, say something like what Red Bull does where you get really meaningful marketing engagements out of the things that they do because what they do is very creative and it's very lurid and it's hard not to cover it. I think you can't talk about the president elect without talking about how you get free press. He was a master of getting free airtime because of what he said and did don't have to agree with the things he said and did, but you have to respect the fact that from a marketing point of view, he got a lot of free publicity out of it. Uh, how can we as an industry, you know, or if you're a brand in this industry, how can you take advantage of things like that? Um, you know, I think some, some brands do it more effectively than others. And that's kind of part of like what racing is. And that's kind of what the, the, the business model for race teams is is like you know when your rider does really well you get free press out of it and he shows up in his alpine stars or dionese leathers he shows up in his awry or showy or hjc helmet um you know and and, and you get you're basically getting free press and that's why valentino rossi gets paid so much more than jorge lorenzo who gets paid so much more than maverick vinales who gets paid so much more than eugene laverty because it's it's the marketing exposure. I remember sitting in Valencia in 2010, 2011. What year did Marco Simoncelli die? 11. 11. I remember sitting in Valencia um, for the final GP race. And it was the race where Paris Hilton was going to come mm-hmm. and be with her MotoGP team. Okay, well, she was sponsoring a Moto3 team. or mm-hmm. Was it MotoGP or was it uh, 125 GP at the time? I think it was 125. I think it was 125 GP. It was Maverick Vinales that was on, was on her team. And there was this, you know, there was, it was funny sitting there in the paddock and, you know, everyone's really shitty about Paris Hilton. And, and that's fair. That's totally fair. But it was interesting. She tweeted 
was it three or four times? And this was kind of still early days in Twitter. And it was certainly still early days in adoption of Twitter and the MotoGP paddock. She treated three or four tweets. The eyeballs on that outstripped everything else that was tweeted out of that paddock that weekend. Just because of how many followers she had. Sure. And versus how many of the followers everyone else did. And I think that's really interesting. Where this idea of... um you know, just, just, just engagement. And now you can go back and say like, you know, how many of her followers were, yeah, it didn't, are going to be motorcycle fans it, and things like that. Yeah, but it wasn't relevant to motorcycling, but, but I you bet, could have captured some of it. I bet, I bet a few people started taking notes and saying like, Hey, that Maverick Vinales guy, you know, he's kind of cool and sure. he's doing well. And that was kind of, I watched that clip and that was really cool. Maybe I should get into motorcycle racing. So, so to, to tie that back into everything else, like, I think that's an interesting way of saying, okay, so let's, Here's some creative ways of of engaging people outside of um, our industry. Here's a way of engaging people on how cool, you know, motorcycle racing can be. And and we can learn some lessons from all of it. Yeah. I mean, that's the only way to take away from me because I had no, I'm straight up, I I could care less. Victory goes away. I don't have any friends any longer that work there. I don't know anybody at the factories. I feel bad for probably a lot of workers. Right. But you, I'm actually, you can't name one bike from their lineup you'll miss. No, right? right. So I thought the 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 thing that they did at Pike Speak was interesting, but when I saw that bike up close, it was a bag of smashed assholes. I wouldn't want to get on it. And it was amazing. Like I give Don, uh, Don Kinnick credit yeah. for riding that thing because that's actually really scary to ride a bike like that. That's a prototype. And, but, and to ride it at the speed he did. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no. And I'm not, I'm also full credit to the engineers that came up with it. When I say bag of smashed assholes, it's because it was a, it was a prototype. I mean, it was a really pure prototype. Like they just built it prototype. And having been at SIS, I know how hardcore that is. It wasn't something that I would like, but I'm pretty sure it would be pretty fun. I, I just don't really give a shit about it. It didn't, it didn't blow up my skirt. So for me, that that brand is like, meh. And the Indian thing, I just want to see him uh, go against Harley-Davidson in the flat track. I think that'll be great. I do think there's legacy there. But I also like to watch Kawasaki whip both their asses if they don't have good product, right? So I could give a shit if those bikes are have some sort of heritage and uh, are appropriating um, uh, Native Americans, which I'm not a big fan of. But I'm stoked if Kawasaki can, or Honda or Suzuki or Yamaha can go out there and give them a run for money. Um, at least they're out there. I think that's good. So if that allows Polaris to concentrate on that, great. If they somehow, somehow use it to springboard into making other bikes for, for Indian that are not cruisers, great. If, if not, oh, well, screw them, right? If that's not where the market is, then that's not where the market is. But I think like we talked about with the, with the Buell as part of the 2016 roundup, if they'd have just gone to an adventure bike and we're seeing that as a very viable, open potential, maybe everybody in this industry is so scared because there just seems to be a lot of fear um, in general, not just in the motorcycle industry, just in life. Everybody seems very scared right now. Um, then they, oh, well, I, you know, the the adventure touring thing, that's just going to be a flash in the pan. Why why should we do that? It's a flash in the pan. I don't think it is. I think that's a, that as a, as a, core part of motorcycling is going to be uh, growing and growing and growing for a long time. That's how you're going to get millennials to get into it, to go on adventures, to get out, to enjoy nature, to get to, to, to go beyond. I think that has a lot of marketing left to be uh, marketed towards millennials and or Gen Xers, right? As they get older as well and have more disposable income, et cetera. So I think that's a big deal. And if, if India could get on that, great. If not, oh, well, 
then they'll languish to that brand too. And Polaris will just keep churning out for, for cars, cars and snow machines and that three-wheeled car that they make. And they'll just keep churning them out and that's fine. But it has nothing to do with my motorcycling personally. And for the most of the listenership, I don't think it has much to do with them either. So I'm, I just don't care. And if the victory goes away, I think it's just sad because again, it's motorcycling and, and going away. Part A part of motorcycling is going away in the country, but not enough for me to give that much of a shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think my summation is I, I, I get the business decision. I, I agree with it reluctantly, but they are right. My biggest thing is I feel like it's just, it's just such a missed opportunity. We're, yeah. we're missing out on opportunity. Something, something cool could have been done there and we're not going to do it. I agree. And maybe, we're not doing it for the right reasons, but I'm still going to feel a little bittersweet about that. And then oh, a bunch of people are about to lose their jobs too. Yeah, let's sucks. not let's not forget about that. Yeah, so, no, that's what I was saying. And that's back, a bad deal. If I'd have known anybody there, and I'm sure there might be in, in the six degrees or three degrees or two degrees of separation in the motorcycle industry, uh, of knowing people in Minnesota, I, I do. I feel for them all, and that sucks. But hopefully they'll get absorbed by other Polaris things. I do. Th- it does feel like that's going to be a little bit of the case. Yeah. Um, They'll use their facilities for other production runs of other things. You know, and that's and that's probably the other side of it that we can probably completely glance right over. You know, if Indians are growing brand, they're gonna have to start building out more yep. production facility. Victory lines are there probably taking up space. You know, convert a victory line to an Indian line. Easy. You're gonna need more marketing people. So the marketing department's gonna yep. have to come over and the supply chain guys. So maybe it's not the end of the world and a lot of these people will get absorbed into Indian and and that'll just help fuel that brand forward. But we're definitely placing a lamb at the sacrificial altar in a way for that. So there's that to consider. Yeah. Well, kickstands up to all of them. Yeah. Good talk. We'll see you out there. Later. Minnesota. Minnesota. We're bad at that accent. That's Minnesota. Not good. Minnesota.